because I figure you want to see the person speaking. I don't know if you can even hear me today, so that probably would be helpful. Um, we've been teaching through a series on the church and on what it is that we're aiming at in being the church together. Um, sometimes we don't, we don't ask foundational questions. We don't start our discussion and our study in the right place. If I were just to ask you, you know, where did the, the idea to do church come from? You know, many times we get involved and we just kind of assume, well, it's been around for a while. I don't know, maybe, what, a few hundred years ago? Somebody came up with an idea to, people should get together. They should hold services and, you know, I don't know maybe somebody could preach or teach from the Bible. That might be a great thing to do. Maybe add some singing to that. That might be fun to incorporate in as well. Well... Uh, if we don't know where the thing started, we might not know where it's supposed to be going either. And so this morning, I want to back us up a little bit, and I want to revisit where this whole idea to do the church started with. Because what we've been doing is teaching through aspects that are in Scripture that teach us how to be the church. And then what we're asking everyone to do is, when we've walked through this series together, if we agree that what we've been studying and reading is biblical, we agree with the Bible, then the next question for us is, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to be committed to what the Bible teaches us? You know, I saw an article the other day about the weakness in American commitment. You know, it used to be years ago that you didn't need to sign some deal with somebody. My word was good enough. You shake somebody's hand, and if you made an arrangement with that person and you shook their hand, your word was good. Well, that's not the case anymore now. Now we've got Morris Bart and everybody related to him. And we need all the attorneys in the world just to make people do what they said they're going to do. Because we're not a people who honor commitments. We don't want to be committed. You know, I, I see this in young people. There's young people today who you can't get them to commit to anything. They want to keep their options open right until two minutes before some event happens because something better might come along. Well, you know, we come to church that way. And the question for us is, are we committed to being the church? Are we committed to being the church when it's not going to be easy to be the church? Pete today gave us some examples of opportunities that there are to serve in the church. You know, many of us participate in the church and we end up being served by others who are given their time. Uh, In this particular service, we owe a great debt of gratitude for individuals who, long before any of us arrive here at 6.30 in the morning, they've been packing up equipment, moving all this stuff here, getting this place ready for us. And they do that every... That's right. We should clap for those guys. Some of them are here this morning. Now, those are folks that are serving us. I mean, I'm blessed that Lauren Godier came yesterday to, to service, attended yesterday, took Saturday morning, served the church, shared the testimony from her life. She's here again today to do that. You know, you know how many of us have this mentality when it comes to the church that, well, if I'm going to do church this week... You know, I just, I just kind of want to do my obligation, check it off, and then go on with all the other stuff that fills my weekend up. And so we cannot have an attitude that we're committed to anything. We're just part of the church. We're not committed to it, though. And so then, you know, Pete gives an example, really from the message Matt preached a couple of weeks ago. Committed to functional membership. When we look in the Bible, members function. They live their life. They do things towards one another. And so for Pete to say, hey, here's an opportunity for you to to function in the body of Christ. Uh, we need folks who will help care for people who are walking through the door for the first time. Don't know where to go. Don't know anyone. Somebody who will you know, give some attention to those folks and care for them. 
like Pete said, you don't, you don't have to be a, a theologian to do that. You just have to care for people. And if God's cared for you, that's an easy thing to give away. Uh, last week, Pastor Jeff talked about uh, being committed to biblical fellowship. And all the dynamics that he shared with us that we need to learn to apply and put on of strengthening one another, supporting one another, knowing each other, and letting other people into our lives so that they know us also. But today I want to deal with an issue of commitment that, that touches the realm of fellowship. Because if you've been in a church for very long, you're going to know that fellowship is a good thing that can also be a bad thing. Fellowship's not always real fun. Because we fellowship with sinners. And sometimes sinners do the wrong thing. And we end up on the wrong end of that. Sometimes we're the ones doing the wrong thing. And we need to be adjusted in our own lives as well. But fellowship can get bad. What happens in a church when fellowship gets bad? What happens when it's not being done biblically? When holiness and care and pursuit of God and walking with others is not being done in a biblical fashion, in a responsible fashion, and sin begins to come into the church and affect the church. Well, how do we respond to that? And what are we committed to when it comes to that? Well, this morning's message is entitled, Committed to Church Discipline. This would not have been a topic that we would want to put in a bulletin in advance. <laughs> I don't know who would come and say, oh man, I can't wait. Sunday it's about church discipline. <laughs> well, if you don't even know what that term means, this morning you can get a crash course uh, on really... So I studied this and, and thought I began with just teaching us through the process of church discipline. I thought it was more important for us to understand the heart of church discipline than the process of it. Now we will probably spell out the process of it in a position paper that'll be part of the church that you can read and we would hope that you would understand and you can ask questions about it if you don't but church discipline goes all the way back to the origins of when God decided I think I would like to have a church See, this is not some few hundred year old idea if we go back and I'd like you to turn back to Exodus chapter 19 let's revisit our origins here for a moment Exodus 19 is, is God meeting with His people at Mount Sinai. He has called His people together. And we're just going to skim through a few passages here to get the sense of the setting that's going on here. Because in this meeting at Mount Sinai, they're going to be introduced to something that they're unfamiliar with to this point. The people of Israel, though they've been selected to be God's people, they're unfamiliar with something called a tabernacle. And they're about to be introduced to the tabernacle for the first time in this meeting at Mount Sinai. Now, if some of you guys have been in Christianity for many years, how many of y'all been saved for more than uh, 20 years? How many of y'all been saved for more than 20 years? Oh, good, good bunch. Y'all remember tabernacle? Remember that word tabernacle? For a while there, all the churches were tabernacle of this and first something something tabernacle. Everybody was tabernacling. You know, now it's community church, right? Everybody just, these names kind of float around and change through time. But the idea of a tabernacle draws its meaning from what we're about to look at today. God has called a meeting. He's summoned His people to the foot of this mountain, at Mount Sinai. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Exodus 19, look in verse 3. While Moses, Moses had gone up to God. Now Moses is going to be on this mountain quite a bit throughout this, this venture here at the foot of Sinai. The Lord called to him 
out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Can you get the heart of God here before we, we, we get a little fireworksy in just a second? Here's the heart of God. God looks and he sees his people living in Egypt under the affliction and the bondage that sin brings upon our lives, personified through Egypt. God's, God's love and compassion for these people. And God highlights that when he says, do you remember? Do you remember what I did to the Egyptians for you? Do you remember I bore you on eagles' wings to bring you to myself? This is the God of the universe who, who doesn't owe us the time of day in light of the way in which we have turned our backs on him and have lived in sin. Yet God comes calling, God comes pursuing, God comes desiring a relationship with his people. So he brings them to Sinai. Look in verse 10. As he gathers them at the foot of the mountain, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Look at verse 16 here. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Can you, can you get this scene for a second? The God of the universe has called people to a meeting at Mount Sinai. And we're about to have, I think, what we should have in our minds, a full glimpse of this God. The first glimpse God says is, do you remember my dear ones that are a treasured possession to me? And God lavishes his affection on them and describes his relationship and his care to them. And that you are special to me. You are a precious people to me. I've called you to myself. And then he tells Moses, Moses, I want you to assemble my people. I want you to take two days to prepare to meet with me. And then on the third day, I want you to bring them to the edge of the mountain. Don't let them touch the mountain. This is a holy exchange. My presence is going to be on that mountain. And if anyone touches the mountain, they're going to die. So God is both endearing and he is both holy, isn't he? And he's all that, all in one chapter of the Bible here. So we don't have to pick one or the other. You know, I'm, I'm going to say this as nice as I can. I am 
we don't do well in all categories either, so I'll say this as humbly as I can also. Churches that present one aspect of God at the expense of another do a disservice to the glory of God and a disservice to people. And I can stand up here one morning and preach, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. If I preach from Exodus 19, God loves you. He is a holy, terrifying God as well. All in the same chapter. Don't anybody crawl up into God's lap, all sloppy and messy. Oh, you know, God, He loves me. He does love you. And you should be terrified of Him. All at the same time. This is God. This is not your next door neighbor. It's not your mom. This is God. So it's okay for us to have categories that are unique about God that don't describe anybody else in our lives. Because He's God. He's not like anybody else in our lives. And so in this moment... Can you imagine? Put yourself in the camp. Moses has come and informed us. You know, we've got my tents right here and maybe your tents over here. and We're having a conversation and we're talking about two days from now. There's a meeting at the mountain with God. God has called us to a meeting. What's this sounding like? Because from the appearance here, it sounds like these people, this is, this is bigger than being called to the principal's office. This is bigger than your day in court. I don't know what the most intimidating meeting you've ever been called to was, but this is bigger than all of it. And they have a sense of that. Now, can we imagine for a moment, real life people, do you think the conversation about this meeting perhaps sounded like, you know, Fred and Joe are standing in front of their tents and Fred says to Joe, Joe, what you thinking, man? What do you think this is, this is about? I mean, I'm, I'm nervous. I mean, my wife and I have been talking. I, I'm I'm concerned. And Joe says, oh, man, it's, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be fine. You know? um, look, make sure you let me know how it goes. Because, I mean, I, man, we, are, we have been so busy lately. We're not going to be able to make the meeting. Um, anyway, we've got laundry stacked up in the tent. It's unbelievable. My wife, I mean, we just crossed the desert. She hadn't been to the store in weeks. So, uh, so, you know, let me know how it goes, all right? Do you think there's anybody in the camp that way? This is God calling a meeting with His people. Nobody else has an agenda in this moment because they exist to be God's people. It's not as though in this moment they got something else to do. God called a meeting and you exist for me. Where else are you going to be but at that meeting? And when they come, they're going to come into an environment that is charged, it is static with the holiness and the presence of God. Because God made it that way. Look at the rest of this passage. Verse 17. After they are trembling, it says, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, 
lest the Lord break out against them. Now, can you, can you get the scene here? I don't know. I probably need Spielberg or something to really help to get us a sense of what did this look like? This is, a, this is a mountain. Okay, we're from Louisiana. We don't know what mountains are. But this is a mountain. And descending upon this at the beginning of the day before Moses said, Okay, guys, time to go. You're in the camp around the mountain. You look out the door of your tent and you see this unusual cloud descending. And lightning begins to flash from it. But peculiar lightning like you've never seen before. And thunder begins to echo off the walls of the mountains. And the ground begins to tremble. And it's this constant... You know this is just not an earthquake. And you know there's a meeting with God today. And all this takes place. And then there's this sound like a trumpet. You know, it's probably not like the Calvary's coming. It's, it's not that kind of sound. It's probably something that they described as a sound of a trumpet. More, perhaps more like a siren is going off. And it's building and it's an intensity. All this is happening and you know I'm about to go there and meet with God. Now, what's interesting is that God did this. God called the meeting. God set the agenda. God created the tone of the meeting. Now, if you've read your Bible, you know everybody who met with God, that's not how it sounded for everybody. It wasn't that way for everybody. But in this meeting, it is that way. Look over in Exodus 20. Turn over to verse 18. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. Now at this point, the people are trying to get as far away as possible. Now, can you get this sense here? God says, come to me. The natural response of man in the presence of holiness is to back away. And this is not wrong. Nobody needs to jump off the side of the mountain and go, no, guys, you misunderstand. Your theology is all wrong. This is, the, this is the response to the presence of God for these people. Verse 19. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So God did this. This isn't that God chose a bad day. It was cloudy and an earthquake happened. And it's not that God is earthquakes and God is fire and God is smoke so that when he shows up, those things can't help but happen. No, God did this. Do you understand that? God, I don't know how he did it. If he had hands, maybe he reached over and grabbed the top of the mountain and began to do this. And then he blew smoke all over the top. I don't know how he did it, but God did it. He put the smoke there. He put the lightning there. He put the thunder there. He shook the mountain. Why did he do that? Because he wanted his people to experience something that would leave an impression on them. And it did, didn't it? And the Bible says God did this to make you tremble so that the fear of him would remain with you. Now, in this very same exchange, what does this have to do with this series? In this very same exchange, Moses, up and down the mountain here, look over in Exodus chapter 25. 
this very same God who has revealed himself this way is now going to introduce his people to something called a tabernacle. Now he's going to introduce them to a tabernacle. Verse 1, Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution. And this is the contribution. And there's a list there that God calls for. Verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. I have called you here today, and I have scared the tar out of you, and I've called you my precious people that I summoned to me, and I've rescued you, and I've performed miracles to bring you here. And I want to dwell in your midst. Well, wait a minute, God. Wait a minute. Quick question here, Lord. I've learned from Sunday school, you are omnipresent. You're everywhere. Of course you dwell with us. Omnipresent is not the same in the Bible as the presence of God. God is everywhere. But the presence of God is when God chooses to show up and manifest himself in a particular time and place. And God says, I want you, my people, to build me a place where I will come to you and I will do that. I will dwell with you. I will manifest my life in your midst. Now, this is the tabernacle that when we read in the New Testament now, if you look in your notes, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, if you, you, you'll see why this language is significant. In the New Testament, it borrows the pictures that God has taken time to paint on the walls of history, and God points back to them as illustrations throughout the New Testament. So if we don't understand some of the things that we're reading in the Old Testament, you kind of just, you know, it's like missing the punchline. Oh, yeah, you read the joke, but you didn't get the punchline because you didn't catch the setup in the Old Testament. Ephesians 2, verse 19, in your outline, it says, So then you are no longer, here we are, New Testament church, speaking to people like us. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now this, this could be another Mount Sinai moment right here. You're no longer people that are far off, scattered, living in Egypt and some other place. You're of the household of God. You belong. You're God's people. You're in his family. You're built on this foundation. Verse 21. Christ is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple. Where did the temple come from? The temple was the permanent form of the tabernacle. The tabernacle traveled with them until they found the place where God says, now you're in the land, now they'll build a temple. The temple was the permanent form of the tabernacle. The temple is that which represents Exodus 25 in a permanent location. So they borrow this image again. You, you are being joined together and you grow into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into, listen, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, what is the church? It is the dwelling place for the presence of God. It is the same concept that Moses listened to at the foot of Sinai is being said to this church in the New Testament. It's being said to us. That's why we began this series Say, you know, God's, God's not into doing six billion things for six billion different people. God's doing one thing. 
is building his church. And his church is this place for his presence to dwell amongst his people and into the earth through that group. That's what God's doing. Now, what Moses cares about in this little exchange with God is what we need to grow to care about as well. Moses was jealous for something. Paul was jealous for something. Remember when we started this series, we started it out of Paul telling the church, speaking to Timothy, who was caring for a local church in in Ephesus. He says, Timothy, I'm writing these things to you so that in case I'm delayed, one will know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the ecclesia, the called out ones of the living God. What idea does Paul have in his head? The called out ones are the ones that God called out of Egypt to himself to be his people and to be the place where the presence of God would dwell. So when Paul says, listen, church, it matters how you live. It matters how you behave because you are the dwelling place of the presence of God. So I'm writing these things to you so you'll know how you ought to conduct yourself. I don't know what you think about when you come in contact with the Bible or the church speaking to you about how you're living your life. I don't know what the modern church thinks of. You know, we're in America. You know, we're, we're tough guys. You know, we're grown men. I don't need somebody telling me what to do. You know, I go out and do that. You know, I, my, my vote counts. Who do you think you are? This is, this is the stuff that's in our culture. And I don't know how you do when the Bible or the authority of the church stands up and says, let me tell you something. It matters how you live your life. Because you're the church. And as the church, you are the dwelling place of the presence of God. And it matters how you live your life. See, God has called us to a meeting. Today is a meeting. It is a meeting with God. I, I would be surprised to hear whether as churches are gathering all over this country today, whether the people who are joining these meetings have spent much time preparing for them. Consecrate yourselves for two days from now you meet with God. Is that what church is for us? Is it a meeting with God? Or is it, you know, we always sing, we tell each other hi, this guy preaches for a while. I you know, hope it's interesting, something we can, something that'll help me, my daily living, a little nugget, cute saying, maybe a stat I didn't know. That'd be fun. Or is this a meeting with God? Did we come today thinking we're going to meet with God and if you touch the mountain you could be dead? We have that kind of sense about the presence of God? See, I, I don't think we do. I think that has been forfeited. I think, I think we don't encounter God that way. I think we don't know God that way. And therefore, we come asking God to sign on for a different plan this morning than perhaps the one he had when he called and summoned his people and said, come to me. Well, God, who are you that we're coming to you? What are you like? We need to be well informed. I'm, I'm going to say this at the, at the bottom of your first page there. There's a need for us to be committed to creating a place for his presence. We need to create a place for the presence of God, because God is a holy God, and one who terrifies his people when his holiness is pressed upon them. And if you follow the rest of this exchange at Mount Sinai, you're going to remember that after Moses has come up and down the mountain, he goes back up, and God keeps him up there for 40 days. 40 days. 
Now, this whole deal at Mount Sinai was about a covenant, right? We're talking about church covenant here. This was about a covenant at Mount Sinai where God called his people and said, I want to make a covenant with you. I want to enter an agreement with you about our relationship. I want to marry you. I want you to be my people. And all the people listened. They got scared to death. Moses explained the deal to them. They gave them the Ten Commandments. And they said, all that God has required of us, we will do. Yes, yes. Moses, tell God we're in. We want this. God, Moses goes back up on the mountain. Apparently, for the Israelites, there was a time limit on their offer. Because you remember what happens while Moses, Moses takes 40 days. You know, 40 days. I mean, 40 days is a long time. And I don't know, after a few days, they kind of get different feelings about waiting on God and being inconvenienced by how long God is taking. So they decide, you know, well, while Moses is dealing with God, we, we probably need another God while he's gone. So they built a golden calf. Do you remember this? When they built the golden calf, they, they then postured themselves now for the opposition of God. But what's interesting, and I'm not going to go back and read this, but if you read in Exodus chapter 33, there's an exchange between Moses and God. And, and Moses begins to intercede and cry out and ask God, God, please don't be done with us. Don't be done with us, God. And God's response, it's interesting, God says something to Moses. He says, Moses, you continue. Lead the people where I told you to take them. My angel will go before you. I will, I will not visit this upon you. But in the day that I do visit you, and, and, and God said something in this, this exchange that must have caught Moses' attention. He heard something here about the dwelling of the presence of God. Because in the next chapter, he begins to pray. He begins to say these things in your outline. Exodus 33, verse 15. That's Exodus 32, I believe that has the other part. And he said to him, this is Moses speaking to God. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, for every other people on the face of the earth? What is it that makes the people of God distinct? Is it because we meet in, in certain buildings? Obviously, it can't be for us. We, we, you know, there was a movie here last night, I'm sure. There was a meeting here last night. There's nothing distinct about us sitting in these chairs today. People who meet in church buildings, well, they're called the church. Is that what makes them distinct? Are they distinct because they have a, a little bit of an improved level of morality over the rest of society? Is that what makes the church the church? Now, Moses knew what makes us your people is your presence with us. That's what makes us your people. And, and Moses heard something from God here. The, the sin of the golden calf has caused God to now respond differently. And Moses picks up on that and he says, God, you know, I heard you say something about an angel going before us. And in the day that you visit, wait, wait, Lord, does this mean you're not going to dwell with us? Does this mean you won't, your presence won't be here with us? Because, God, if that's the deal... Don't send us from here. Because we won't be a distinct people. No one on the earth is going to know anything different about us. And, and we will need your favor in our lives. Do you know what produces the favor in our lives? It's not just people being nice to us. I mean, I'm grateful that God stirs our hearts and we, we, we run towards each other. and We care for each other in our seasons of need. 
But you know where the favor for our lives comes from? It comes from the presence of God. That's what causes us to have favor in our lives. Look at this passage. Psalm 46. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. This is where God dwells. God is in the midst of her. Listen to the impact of God being in her midst. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Listen, do you know where do you know where strength comes from for the people of God? Do you know where success comes from for the people of God? Do you know where favor comes from on our lives? Listen, God is for his people. God is causing things to happen in my life, in my family, in my relationships, in, in my finances. He's causing that to happen. His presence manifests in our midst. is causing those things to happen. Moses recognized it. Paul recognized it when he said, Listen, I'm telling you these things so that you'll know how you ought to behave in the church of the living God. We don't want to forfeit the presence of God in our midst. And when God comes and says, I want to tabernacle with you, but let me, let me set the tone of me dwelling with you. And the tone he sets is to invite his people to, to the foot of the mountain and for them to walk away trembling and so that the fear of him may remain so that you would not sin. Why is it so important that God would highlight the issue of sin? Because the issue of sin quenches the Spirit of God. The issue of sin removes the presence of God. The Bible says God's eyes are too pure to even look upon unrighteousness. God, God doesn't dwell amongst sin. Sin grieves God. Sin quenches the Spirit. So if in the people of God there is sin, then there is an effect on the presence of God. Now what's interesting for Moses is he doesn't hear that, oops, golden calf happened, we blew it, we're no longer God's people. You know, Moses, go wherever you want now, because you don't belong to me. Go wherever you want, Moses. That's not what Moses heard. The journey continues, the mission continues. What's different now is the presence of God in their midst. They're still God's people, but the presence of God in their midst now has changed. Listen, we live in a day and an age where the presence of God amongst the people of God has changed. Do you know how many denominations there are that believe the right things? Denominations that would sit down and would explain to you from the Bible a belief in the person, the work of Christ, salvation through grace alone. There would be plenty of denominations we're saying the right things. But there's no presence of God there anymore. I, I'm, I'll use a few names here. I'm going to run the risk that if you have this background, you're going to think I'm being critical of your particular church. Uh, I'm not. I'm being historic. I hope you'll allow me to do that. At one point in, in history, at one point in history, the, well, it really wasn't the Lutheran church. It took a while to get that name. But those who 
had followed Martin Luther in the Reformation, the presence of God in the midst of those people was incredible. They turned the world upside down. When the slumber fell upon the church and God began to stir a group of people that we began to be eventually known as the Presbyterians, the Great Awakening occurred. And if you've studied church history, you know the Great Awakening was just that. It was awakening a church that had become lethargic and asleep and sinful. And God began to awaken a group of people. And they believed and the presence of God came and there was revival and change and it went on for years. It was a group of people in the wake of that that eventually began to be known as the Methodist. That the Spirit of God fell upon them like John and Charles Wesley. And they began to, to move in the presence of God and God's favor was upon their meetings and their times together. And people began to be saved Hundreds and thousands of people were being saved. The presence of God was there. The favor of God was on those meetings. And on those times, they began to meet in smaller meetings. And sanctification and growth and holiness began to take place in people's lives. Now, why do I, I use those as examples? Because if you were to visit many, not all, many Lutheran churches or Presbyterian churches or Methodist churches in this modern setting you would not experience what those folks experienced for many of them. Not for all, but for many. And I want to flatter us to he here today. Don't think that that won't or couldn't happen to us. Oh, we believe all the right things. Well, these guys believe the right things. It's not severe heresy in any of those locations. You can be believing a lot of the right things and not have the presence of God. Now, what brings that about? Well, according to the Word of God, it is the presence of sin that creates a problem for the presence of God. And the question for us, we're, we're building a church. We're not just building a building, we're building a church. What are we committed to? Are we committed to the presence of God? Because if we are, then our lives need to be considered in terms of what is the presence of sin like in our lives that we bring to this meeting when we gather together. Now, with that as a backdrop, I want to walk us through a New Testament application of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't nearly have the time today to really take this apart, and this passage has much in it that needs comment. But 1 Corinthians 5, this is a church founded by the Apostle Paul. At this point, it's about five years old. It is a dynamic church. It's a powerful church. Things are happening. God is moving in this place. I'm not sure what I would liken this church to in a modern setting, but it would have, uh, they probably would run commercials on TV, probably would have billboards that you'd see, the, the Church of Corinth. Um, very dynamic personality. You know, they would, have, they would have been out there. And they would have been capturing attention in many, many ways. And they would have considered themselves be cutting edge. I mean, they're on the, on the cusp of all that God is doing. And they would have had a bit of an attitude about themselves as well with that. So they're, they're five years old. This is an immature church. But it's a very dynamic church. But they have a major problem here. And Paul is concerned for the life of this church. And you're going to hear in Paul what I think you hear in Moses. You're going to hear a passion for a leader. There's concern for the presence of God in this place. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. 
It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. This is the church he's writing to. This is not the city of Corinth. This is a gathering like this that this letter is written to. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church for whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, this is a serious chapter, isn't it? This is in the Bible. This is meant to be lived and applied. I'm just curious to ask this question. How many of you have ever been in a church where you've seen church discipline done? Hold your hand up. Let me see. Wow. Not very many. This is in the Bible. This is in the Bible in numerous places. It is not done by churches. It's not right. This is a a part of being the church. This is a good part of being the church. This this sounds heavy-handed and harsh. But in just a moment, I want to explain why it it is the right thing to do. Why we should be aware of it biblically. Let me just highlight for a moment the tone of the Apostle Paul here. As he comes into this situation, he hears about a church. A church that's not stopping to deal with an issue it's just going on you know and and we're great and we're doing this and we're doing that and god is moving in our midst and we're celebrating this and we can't hey paul you coming soon because stuff's going on and it's and and paul's aware the sin in the midst of you and you're not dealing with it there's quite a contrast here about the how this church was viewing sin in its midst and how the apostle paul is dealing sin with sin in its midst I think there's a great deal of modern application for that. How many churches today, when it comes to being aware, there are sinful practices practices taking place in individuals' lives in the churches? How many of them respond just like Corinth? 
Oh, well, life goes on. This great stuff happened in other categories. We'll just ignore that. Apostle Paul can't imagine that being ignored. This is an issue. And there's two reasons why it's an issue. I want to try and get to both of them here this morning. Paul is concerned here. Now, let me make this crystal clear. Paul is not responding to the thought that there would be sin in the presence of the church. That is not what Paul is responding to here. Paul's not flipping out going, I heard that somebody sinned in Corinth. Oh my gosh. I heard someone sin in the church in Corinth. This is unbelievable. No, that's not what you're hearing here. Now, why do I, I'm certain about that one because I'm just reading the passage, I can tell that. But if I read the rest of the book, it's abundantly clear. Paul, all throughout the Corinthian passage, he's dealing with sinners in Corinth. They're messing up all over the place. You've got some of them over there that are being divisive. Some of them are running around all proud saying, you may be of Apollos, but I'm of Paul. And others saying, well, good for you two, but I'm of Christ. And I mean, there's all this competition going on. They're suing each other. They're taking each other to court. You have a group of them that come together when there's a, a feast meal that they'll have to celebrate and remember the Lord. Some of them arrive early so they can eat all the food before the rest of them get there. I mean, this is an immature church. They're five years old. They're screwy. They don't know how to use their spiritual gifts correctly. And Paul highlights all that throughout the book. And nowhere except in this instance does he say, kick anybody out. Nor does he say, as he gets to the end, you know, chapter, the end of, of 1 Corinthians doesn't end with, close the door and put a lock on it. <laughs> you guys are pathetic. Now, they were pathetic in many ways. But the solution to that wasn't to shut the thing down. So Paul's not freaking out here because there's sin in Corinth. There was sin in, in the issues of Romans. There was sin in the Galatian church. There was sin in all the churches that Paul addressed. What is being addressed here is an individual who is publicly affecting the life of the church and who is not willing to repent or change. He is practicing sin. And he's unwilling to deal with it. He is unrepentant. And the church, Paul is as concerned about this individual, and he's also concerned about the church. What is your response to this person? You guys are celebrating all that's going on in your midst. You should be mourning. Your response is totally wrong. Now, this man's sin, Paul highlights in the beginning, saying, you know, the, the pagans don't even sin like that. But, but lest we think this is just some unique sin, he, he broadens the category later on. I'm writing to you in verse 11 that you not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, is a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Okay, now the list has gotten beyond just some guy who's uh, sleeping with his, his stepmother. It's beyond that now. But it is about people who have decided, I will put one foot in the world and embrace the practices of the world, knowing that I'm doing it, and not being willing to be taught otherwise or to repent and put one foot in the church, and I will do both. I will live in both. It is that situation that the Apostle Paul is addressing here. Let no one leave from here today thinking, oh, like you think, that if you, if you sin, you ought to be put out of the church. Did everybody understand? I did not just say that. Okay, because I would have to leave first. Do you understand? There's nobody in this building that, that isn't dealing with and facing and stumbling over issues of sin. There is no one here today. You could not convince me. 
that you don't have issues where you fall on your face and you blow it. I know I do. Now that's true for all of us. And so we're not, we're not advocating everybody who sins get out. But the church is a place for the presence of God. If you will not respond to God, if you will not cooperate with God, if you will not cease to sin in categories where God has convicted you and you have been approached biblically and you refuse to do that, then you would be a candidate for this action prescribed in Scripture. And it would be the right thing for the church to do. As a matter of fact, it would be the most loving thing for the church to do in your life. When you look at the rest of this passage, you're going to find uh, an issue, I think, that, that drives their problem here, and it drives modern problems for churches today, is a lack of sense of, of the fear of God. A lack of the sense of the holiness of God is in the churches. It was in this church. They weren't taking notice of this. It didn't show up on the radar. It wasn't, it wasn't significant enough for them. It showed up on Paul's radar. He's flipping out. He can't believe they're not responding. There's a casualness in this church about sin. Listen, there's a casualness today in the church about sin. We have so downgraded our definition for sin. We don't know what it is to stand at the foot of Mount Sinai. We don't know that God. He's the same God. Everybody understand God didn't have a lobotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And all of a sudden he mellowed with age. You know, so glad the New Testament God's chilled out. He's the same God. He hasn't changed one bit. His feelings towards sin are reflected at Mount Sinai. And today, that's the same God. He still feels the same way about sin in the midst of his people. that He longs to dwell in their midst. John MacArthur wrote a book called The Vanishing Conscience. In it, he highlights what is really an epidemic in the church. He says, one of the great tragedies of contemporary culture is that we have lost any concept of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Today's church seems utterly to lack any notion of the profound evil of sin. Now, we'll grieve over calamities. If something terrible happens to us, we'll grieve over that. We're troubled by our miseries. The trials of life distress us. But are we equally disturbed by our sin? Are we equally disturbed by our sin? Do you understand why the church sounds this way? Because too many pulpits in this country are too concerned about how the gospel benefits you. Not how it serves the glory of God. So the gospel is all about putting a band-aid on the bobos of humanity. I've had a calamity. Oh, how can the gospel help me? I'm going through trials in life. Well, how can we help you with that? The gospel's all over the issues that touch our lives in modern pulpits today. It is not jealous for the glory of God. When God formed the concept of the tabernacle, he began with a place for his presence to dwell. And then he would bless our lives. The city of God would be blessed because the presence of God is there. Do not extract the presence of God from the place of God and then say, well, we're all over the issue of, well, what's going on in my life? How does the message of God serve me? How can it help me? How can I improve my life? How can I get out of being this way and become this way? That's all about us. MacArthur goes on and says, Affliction, we believe, is to be avoided at all costs. Sin, on the other hand, is thought to be easily forgivable. Therefore, to offend God 
is viewed as the lesser of evils when the other choice is to endure some kind of personal pain or affliction. We are absolutely fine with offending God if it helps us avoid even today discomfort in our lives, inconvenience in our lives. I mean, God's a big God. He'll forgive us. We're all over that. Lost respect for the fear of God in the midst of the church. You know, in Louisiana, we just had the deadline to turn our income tax in. I wonder how this has played out in the life of Christians. How many Christians cheat on their income tax? You know, save a few bucks here or there. Just don't report that. You know, lots of people do it. How many Christians in America are doing that? How many business, Christian business owners know the law says operate this way? But if you operate that way, it's going to cost you money to operate that way, and you'd rather have a little bit more of that money than have it cost you that money. So you just kind of skirt that. You know you're not supposed to, but it's not a big deal. You're not murdering anybody. See, these little issues that we allow. Why? Because, well, you know, well, if it's wrong, it's, it's a little bit wrong. It's not, it's not big wrong. It's a little wrong. You know, God's forgiving. It's not a big deal. See, we, we, we treat meetings. In this country, we treat meetings like this this way. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's a New Testament command to the people of God. That's kind of like, in two days, show up at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, all of us were fine a moment ago when we described the people of Israel and thought it'd be ridiculous for those guys to say, I'm not going to come. I'm tired, you know. Is it in the morning? Oh, it's just too early for me. I'm just not a, I'm not a morning guy, you know. I'm pretty sure when the earth started to shake and the, and the lightning would wake you up. It was an interesting alarm clock God shows that day. People got up and they showed up. But see, today, it's inconvenient. You know, I've got to get up. You know, I work all week long. I had somebody recently tell me, I, I get up at this hour every morning. Well, then it should be easy for you to show up here for nine. <laughs> you get to work at like seven. To sleep two hours more. But, you know, it's like, well, you know, my week is I just need to catch up on some rest. Do you understand what this sounds like when you read the whole Bible? This is God calling for a meeting. This is a holy God calling us to meet with Him. And the church today treats it as though, well, that's optional. The church treats tithing that way. Well, you know, I'm just, you know... It's just, you know, I'd be, that'd be, like, if I tied, it'd be a few hundred dollars a month more than what I'm given now. And, you know, the Bible calls that robbing God, robbing him. See, the Bible puts a real ugh, ugly face on that. You are robbing me, God says. Now, consider the seriousness of this. If sin disturbs and hinders the presence of God... Well, how much is the presence of God worth to you? How much is it worth to me? Would I rather keep my few hundred dollars a month in my pocket in exchange for the presence of God? God, you keep your presence. I'll keep my money. I don't think anybody here wants to live that life. See, that's not the church we want to build. I'll tell you right now, that's not the church I want to pastor. That's not the church I want my family involved with. That's not the... I mean, I'm becoming more and more aware, you know, I'm, I'm not that old, but I'm 42 years old. My life is moving quickly. And I'm realizing I have this short privilege 
to advance and build the kingdom of God for a few years in my life. And in all of eternity, I will not have that any opportunity anymore. I have the short opportunity in this setting to do that. I, I don't want to create a place where the presence of God is not. You know why are we doing this series? Because I, I would honestly, I would rather, I would rather see the church reduced and have the presence of God there than enlarged without Him. Lord, if you won't go with us, then I'm not interested in you building a building in Lakeview. God, if you won't go with us, I'm not interested in this place growing. God, don't bring any more people to us. Don't add any more people if we're not going to create a place for your presence to dwell here. I don't want to be a part of that church. And and, and in order for me to be in the church, I'm going to have to soberly look at my own life. And you're going to have to do that for yours as well. Because what occurs... In this, in this setting, and I'm going to try and, and tie a whole bunch of thoughts together here. Paul is aware that God desired a tabernacle, a place for his presence to dwell. So when he hears there's sin in Corinth, the siren is going off for him. It's going off because he knows, oh, you are quenching the spirit. You are, you are damaging the place for the presence of God to dwell I imagine he must he must be considering your time is limited before the church in Corinth becomes a different place than it is now, much worse. But when he not only is outraged in the beginning, but he says something in verse six. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And he says this, when Paul uses that do you not know phrase, he's used it in other places. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what the modern slang translation for that might be. What are you, an idiot? I think it might be something like that. Don't you know what you're doing? I get, you know, the first thing that jumped in my mind when I read that, I thought, modern setting, uh, the Apostle Paul's on one end of a cell phone, uh, some friends are calling they're laughing, they're speeding down the highway in their car, and they're just having a friendly conversation with Paul, Paul who is an explosives expert in this setting, and they're saying, Paul, you're not going to believe what we just found in the backseat of the car. And music's blaring, and they're just laughing in the background. Some nitroglycerin, man, what's going on here, huh? Paul's an explosives expert. You can hear it in his voice. He's saying, you don't know what you have in the car. Slow down, slow down, pull over. Hey, tell everybody to hold still. This is, there's a panic in this man's voice. Because he knows what they have in their midst. He understands the nature of sin. He has seen it. And he biblically understands it. He says, sin, it's like leaven. Don't you know that? It's like yeast. When you stick it into the dough, it doesn't just take the edge of the dough and leave the rest of the dough alone. It never stops until it has permeated the entire thing. It's like cancer in your body. It's not going to stop until it's consumed your life. Paul says, do you know what you have? The word he used there in the, in the Greek. Where am I here? I'm, I'm so out of my notes here. The word he used in the Greek for... Uh, leaven is the word zume. It means it is applied to that which, though small in quantity, 
by its influence, thoroughly pervades something. It thoroughly pervades it. The nature of sin is that it is invasive and it is pervasive. It invades settings like this in order to pervade settings like this. It invades your life personally in order to pervade you completely. That's the mission of sin. That's the nature of sin. Do you remember this passage in, it's in your outline, Romans chapter 5? This is an incredible passage. I don't think we consider the scope of this. Romans 5 verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, one man, sin had its foothold in one man. Now, when you think about the scope of this, it is frightening. And death through sin, so death spread to all men. You understand the nature of sin? It is eleven. It will leaven the entire lump. Ralph Venning wrote a book called The Sinfulness of Sin. He says this, See how it has extended and spread itself all over the world. There's no land or nation, tribe, language, kindred, or people where it has not been known from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. Besides this, it has infected all ages. It is almost as old as the world. It has run in the blood from Adam to Moses and so on to this day. It is the plague which has lasted almost 6,000 years. Indeed, what is more, not one man has escaped it. All kinds of men, all ranks, high and low, rich and poor, kings and beggars have been infected by it. No one can escape the infection of sin. Its nature is consuming. It is invasive and it is pervasive. Not only... Not only is this an issue as, as it addresses an individual, but is an issue from the individual into the corporate setting. Many of you will remember this story from the Old Testament. We've used it a number of times. God calls his people. Eventually they go on this mission from Sinai. They go into the promised land and they have to fight and, and kick the enemies out of the promised land. They win this great battle at Jericho. Remember this? The walls come down, they march around, and they take all kinds of stuff from Jericho as prizes. And God gives them a command. He says, don't touch any of that stuff. It's all dedicated for destruction. Put it over here and keep your hands off of it. Now, this is an entire nation of people. One guy, one guy decides, I see a couple of items that I just can't resist. So he takes them and he hides them in his tent. A few days later, the nation of Israel goes to the next city. They go to fight. It's a city called Ai. It's a little city. Jericho was major. Jericho was Super Bowl. This is Little League. So they send up a contingency, knowing we'll take these guys out, no problem. We'll be back for lunch. They go up. They fight at Ai. These little nobodies at Ai kick their behinds. And they come running. And now all of a sudden, fear has come into the people of God says their hearts melted before the presence of their enemies. And they begin to imagine, oh my gosh, this is going to spread throughout the promised land. We can be defeated. People are going to rise up against us. Cities, and now their imaginations are running. And they call a prayer meeting and Joshua calls out to God and says, God, what are we going to do? God says, Joshua, get up. Why are you standing here? There's sin in the camp. 
you need to go deal with it. The nation, it says this, Israel has sinned. You know what it didn't say? Achan has sinned. The man's name who took it was a guy named Achan. It didn't say Achan had sinned. It said Israel has sinned. And therefore, you cannot stand before your enemies. Not that you will not. It's that you cannot. Wait a minute. By sheer numbers, they could have just gone and marched all over Ai. Remember where the power comes from. It doesn't come from man. It doesn't come from our numbers. We're not great because we have a lot of people gathered. That's not what makes a church great. What makes a church great is the presence of God. God is in the midst of her. And so God says, until you deal with this, I am no longer with you. Their sin, that one man's sin, caused this person way over here that perhaps didn't even know him to be affected. And the power and the presence of God in that place was affected. Can I, can I put that into a modern setting here? If you are a person who is walking in sin, practicing sin, and dabbling in the church, you, you like some of the dynamics that you're getting from this, but you like the world, and there's allegiance and loyalty there, and you pursue that. Can I tell you, you are weakening whatever church you associate yourself with. You're weakening it. Might you be affecting the presence of God that brings conviction into the lost sinner's life that's here this morning? The presence of God was great in the midst. Might that person have noticed God is here and fall on his face and repent? But when the presence of God is weakened, Hindered, might that person not notice? Yeah, I know you don't sit and think that. Why? Nobody knows. Nobody knows I did that. Nobody knows I've been doing this on the side. I think biblically I have the right to say, your sin is affecting the preaching of the word today. People who need to be affected by the word of God may, may walk out of this place unaffected. That's very sobering, isn't it? So this is, this is the church. This is a place where God wants to divinely operate in people's lives, setting them free. We just did a, a series on freedom. Can I tell you something about that series? God was all over that series. The fruit from that series is sorely lacking. Why is that? I'm, I'm concerned. We've met, we've talked, we've prayed about this. Very concerned. Because what I believe God wanted to do through that series, it should have had people dancing in these aisles this morning. It should have been people who've been walking for years in their lives, facing issue after issue, facing battles in their lives. And when the power of God and the presence of God and the revelation of God touched your life and set you free, and you worship God this morning, you should have known what it was to dance for joy because God did something incredible in your life. But there's a whole bunch of folks here this morning who are still sitting in jail cells. Why is that? Eric, let me let you go ahead and come up here. Let me, let me close with this quote from Jonathan Edwards. <clears throat> if grace 
seems to be languishing rather than flourishing in your soul, perhaps, <clears throat> perhaps some way of sin is the cause. The way to grow in grace is to walk in obedience and to be very thorough in doing so. Just one sin practiced habitually will suppress your spiritual prosperity and will diminish the growth and strength of grace in your heart. It will grieve the Holy Spirit. It will prevent the good influence of God's Word. Did you hear that? It will prevent the good influence of God's Word. As long as it remains, it will be like an ulcer, keeping you weak and lean, though you be fed the most wholesome spiritual food. This God has called us. This holy God wants a place for His presence to dwell. He invites us. Deal in your hearts. Deal in your lives. If there is sin in your midst, it is, it is like a cancer. It is looking to run throughout this place and touch every life possible. It will do so in a spiritual, mysterious way that you're not even aware of. Well, no one knows. No one knew Achan had taken anything. No one knew he had hid it in his camp. No one knew. But the favor of God was lost. The presence of God was diminished. Day, there may be issues in your life. You think it's only affecting you. It's not only affecting you. It is not only affecting you. And it is a leaven in your life that it's going to run its course. You can't stop it. If you will cooperate with it, if you won't get the leaven out, it's going to consume not only the things around you, but it's going to consume you. It's going to move from the category that it is in right now to other categories. And you're going to have a diminished sense of pursuit of God in other places. You're going to have a rising sense of sin in other places. This is the nature of sin. This is the fact that sin could go from one man to every person you've ever known. See, we we need to be committed as a church. Not just to a process called church discipline, but, but to creating a place for the presence of God. And if we're not committed to that, then we need to be dealt with by God and eventually by the church itself. Because we want a place for the presence of God. That's what we want. I know that's what you want. Let's stand up together. your presence we do long to embrace we want all that you are in our lives we want you active we want you affecting us Lord we have downplayed the issue of sin we live in a culture that every day is redefining sins things that used to be sin aren't sin anymore Lord that's rubbing off on us we've become a people who think sin's not a big deal because we aren't familiar with the God of Mount Sinai. Lord, thank you for reaching into our place of Egypt and calling us out. Thank you for the endearing passion that's in your heart toward us, that you'd even make us a special people for your own. Thank you for the invitation 
to have us build a place for your presence, Lord. What an amazing call. We're overwhelmed. We could just be individual losers running through our life doing our own thing, but you have given us this call to build a place for you to be present with us. Oh, this is, these words are, are beyond us. Lord, you are holy. And where there is sin, it is in opposition to your presence. This morning, Lord, be gracious to us. Let conviction well up in our hearts. Let desires come afresh. Lord, remind us of the moments in the past as I can remember where sin was operating in my life until the day when something welled up inside of me and I said, no more. I don't want this anymore. I want my God. This is keeping me from Him. Lord, would you give us that this morning? Would you let your presence come and and move throughout this place and blow through our lives a fresh sense that we're done with that. We're willing to forfeit the pleasures it offers us. We're willing not to have the kingdom of God on the basis of convenience. We're willing, God, to lay our lives down to possess you and who you are. Oh, God, give us hearts towards you even right now. I want to ask you to do something that's going to help you in days ahead. I want to ask you to deal boldly with your issues. If you're here this morning and there is sinful issues in your life that you are practicing that you might think no one else knows about, or they are practices that you have given up on, they're no longer issues that you are repenting of. You have not repented of this issue. If you have, it's been a long time. I want to ask you this morning, I want to ask you to to give fire to that issue in your life. I want to ask you to step out from where you are. Now, this service is not a real convenient place, but there's a place for you to come here. There's a place for you to come stand here. If you want to come to my right, come down. I want you to get a place with God. I don't want you to be rushed. I want you to seek God. I want you to say, God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for opening my heart to a revelation of who you are. God, thank you for not letting me keep you at a distance. Lord, thank you for stopping the spread of this sin from my own life into my family, my wife, my children, my friends, into this church. God, thank you for a moment that you've given me grace to deal with this issue. Oh, don't pass God up this morning. There's an issue in your life. Don't minimize it. Don't make an excuse for it. Don't act as, oh, well, you know, a lot of people do that. If it's an issue in your life that you're not on top of, I'm not talking about the one that you fell down two days ago and you got up again, you swung the word of God at it, you fought, you resisted, and you're still being tempted. I'm not talking about that issue. That's every Christian in this building is doing that. I'm talking about the issue you're not telling people about. I'm talking about the issue that's been an issue for you, that you put it on a shelf, and it's been a long time since you've dealt with it. I'm talking about that issue. Today, today is a place of repentance. You guys can come around over here and get some more room over this way. Today is a day of repentance by the grace of God. Do you know what tomorrow needs to be? Tomorrow, tomorrow, at some point in the future, needs to be a day when the church comes to you. It's your covenant group leader who knows you're in this meeting and you're not responding. And he knows. He knows there's an issue leavening your life and you're not up here. I'll tell you something. He can't make you come up here right now. But if you won't deal with that, he's going he's to get under an obligation to come to you biblically and to plead for you to deal with that issue. And if you will not, if you refuse the grace of God at some point, the appropriate response for the church 
is to withdraw from your life and to allow that sin to put a bitter taste in your mouth. Now the good news is that's God's means of causing you to repent as well. This man was delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that he might be saved. Discipline from the church has the intention of restoring you. It's not an easy process to walk through. It is is a difficult, embarrassing thing to walk through. If you wait and you have somebody have to come and find you, you've got a different issue on your hands than if you say, God, I want to be done with this. God, I volunteer to deal with this issue in my life. I come to you, God. You don't have to come and run me off because I refuse you. This is a church. It's a holy place. It's a place for the presence of God. It's a place where God loves you enough to say, don't leave that leaven in your life. It will not leave you alone. It will find every nook and cranny in your life. You think it's contained, don't you? You think it's just in the closet or in the bathroom right now. It is going to take your whole house down. It's worse than any mold you've ever seen growing in a house. It's worse. It's coming after you. Do not deal lightly with this, please. I can't love you any more than to put teeth into this thing. The most loving thing I can tell you is, if you won't deal with your sin, then the church needs to come to you and adjust your timetable on repentance. That's what church discipline does. Well, I'm I'm not going to do this forever. You're doing it now, though. And you won't stop. And you think you're planning on doing it in the future and changing. Sin won't let you do that. You're on its timetable. And the grace of God comes in the form of church discipline. And it says, now's the day. You need to repent. And if you say no on that day, you leave the church no alternative. But to say, well, then you, you cannot walk with us until you've dealt with that. Somebody else needs to come. Let Eric just take us before the Lord and minister to him for a moment. I know this theater has a limited time for us to be in it, so I'll need the cleanup crew to be ready to go quickly after this. But let's pray. Let's ask for God's presence. Let's pray for these guys who are here. Let's ask for God's favor on them. Lord, Lord, thank you. This is mercy from you, Lord. We do realize that God at Mount Sinai, you could consume us. Lord, if we color outside the lines, you would be right to simply consume us in that moment. But Lord, here we are today taken the time and the grace to set before us who you are. You've convinced us of the power of sin. You've drawn us to yourself. You've been kind to us today. Lord, let us break our allegiances with sin and its promises in our lives. It's a liar. It's a deceiver. It comes to steal from every one of us. Lord, rescue us from the bankruptcy that sin wants to bring us to. Lord, rescue us from the day when sin comes and wrecks our lives taken from us in multiple categories. Lord, protect our marriages today. Protect our children today, Lord. Lord, today protect our church for generations to come that our children will inherit a place where your presence still dwells richly. It's not a day that one day people talk about, oh, I remember what Lakeview used to be like. It's not that way anymore. Lord, rescue us today from that day with your gracious correction in our lives. 